three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Today is Friday, October 11th. And uh, man, I'm, I'm out of it. I'm so tired. I'm having a hard time. I just, uh, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I, I've been sick all week. I'm like way deep in film. I'm trying to find an apartment to live in. I think all those factors combined, the fact that I'm not done with my projects about Gardner Minshew and the Bears quarterbacks and Mariota, it's just weighing on me a little bit. I'm trying to get it all done. Uh, I want to just just jump right in, honestly. During week five of the NFL season, the Indianapolis Colts beat the Kansas City Chiefs 19-13. to And uh, it was really, really impressive to me. I was just like, wow, it's a big win. And my main question was, what did the Colts defense do to slow down Patrick Mahomes and that incredible Kansas City Chiefs offense? They held them to only 13 points. So my next question was, all right. Did they create a template that other teams can follow where they can repeat the same scenario? Is there now a template that other teams can follow to beat Patrick Mahomes? And the way I answer these kind of questions is by watching film. So I ask, okay, what does the film say? My first takeaway when watching the game is that (laughs) uh, you do not stop Patrick Mahomes. And nobody, nobody can stop Patrick Mahomes. All you can do is slow him down. And any team who plays against the Kansas City Chiefs better have patience and they had better have emotional maturity because he's going to make all kinds of incredible plays throughout the entire game. There was a second and 16 where he scrambled around and threw for an 18-yard game. And those words, you know, he scrambled around and threw for a big play. I wrote those down over and over and over again. I felt bad for the Colts defensive coordinator. He must have just thrown up his hands and gone, what can I do? There was a third and 18 where he scrambled and then threw a touchdown pass. And you're like, we had him dead to rights. Multiple times, they're like, we have him in a great situation. Either it's you know third and 28. And then he runs around and throws for 27 yards, heads up a fourth and one. <laughs> or like a third and nine, the defensive coordinator's happy. Like, we got him in third and long. We pinned him back. And he'll run around, extend the play, and throw for 16 yards. And you're like, man. What can we do to stop Patrick Mahomes? Now, there are a couple things the Colts did to stop Patrick Mahomes that can be repeated. And there are some things they did that you just got to acknowledge they were fortunate that they, that happened and that other teams can't duplicate. The one thing the Colts and other teams cannot duplicate ever in the future is the Kansas City Chiefs had 11 penalties, giving up 125 yards. It's pretty ridiculous. That's crazy. You know, a holding call and a false start led to a third and 21. There was a third and 28 the Chiefs ran into at the end of the game where, you know, an illegal hands to the face call, then a sack set them up for that really long third down behind the sticks. And so teams that play the Chiefs in the future cannot expect help from a ton of penalties. But there are some things the Colts did to stop the Chiefs that can be replicated. First of all, The Colts ran the ball for 180 yards. They were committed to the run. Their running back, Marlon Mack, had 132 yards rushing. And running the ball consistently and the style of offense and the style of game plan the Colts had on offense allowed them to control the ball all game long. Listen to this. It's a time of possession. The Colts had the ball for 37 minutes and 17 seconds. 
Well, the Chiefs only had the ball for 22 minutes and 45 seconds. That's nearly a 15-minute difference. So the Colts had the ball for nearly an entire quarter longer than Patrick Mahomes in that Chiefs offense. So I guess one way to beat Patrick Mahomes is simply to keep him off the field. Okay, that's fair enough. The offense, you know, for the Colts went really slowly. There were no hurry. And what that does is it allows your defense to rest. And this is how the Colts dominated time of possession. You know, in fact, they did it so much that the Chiefs only had four possessions in the entire second half. You know, the Colts had an 11-play drive that took six minutes. And then later they had a 14-play drive that took over eight minutes in the second half. However, the Colts didn't just get lucky with penalties and play keep away the entire game. No, the Colts played really fundamentally sound football. And they had a good strategy. They had a good, smart strategy that worked. There's a lot of things we got to go through. First of all, the Colts tackling was superb. They flew downhill. They defended their gaps incredibly. They held the Chiefs to 36 yards rushing. But back to tackling in open space, in one-on-one situations, the Colts were flawless, breaking down and making one-on-one tackles. Here's the other thing the Colts did. They played a ton of man coverage, and they did it really, really well. Here's why I love this game plan. You know, Patrick Mahomes has an incredible arm. He can make any throw on the field. But why make it easy on him? Why not make it tough? The Colts' attitude was, okay, if Patrick Mahomes is going to beat us, he's going to have to make unbelievable throws against man coverage every single time. The Colts believed, and they were right, by the way. They believed, okay, Patrick Mahomes cannot consistently beat us Every single play. He just he can't make that. The whole, cold, the whole Chiefs offense cannot consistently complete passes in the really tight windows every single play. They'll do it a lot. And man, did they. They had a lot of success. But the consistency was hard to sustain because of the pressure the Colts defense put on the, Colts, on the Chiefs offense. And, and by the way, the Colts pass rush, they did an incredible job. They had, you know, with a four-man rush, sometimes five, they were able to get pressure on Patrick Mahomes. And by bringing only four or five guys, I meant they could drop six or seven into coverage. You know, 11 minus five is six. So if you bring five guys after the quarterback, you can drop six guys into coverage. And here's what's really, really cool. Is even when the Colts got beat, they kept fighting. There's a play where the Colts corner Shaq Taylor got beat in man coverage. But he didn't give up on the play. He kept fighting. I mean, you know, Mahomes throws a perfect pass And Taylor ripped the ball out. You know, claw, punch, rip is something my coach used to teach us in defensive back meetings. He would say, claw, punch, rip the ball. CPR, pull that ball out of there. Even if you're beat, rip the ball out of the receiver's hands. And then one of the most interesting plays came on a second down near the end of the first quarter. The Chiefs ran an RPL, meaning they called a run play where Patrick Mahomes reads the defense and decides to throw a pass after the snap. So post-snap, The Colts linebackers ran downhill, attacked line of scrimmage, running right at the running back. So Mahomes threw the ball right behind him. But even though, you know, Mahomes made the right read, he did everything right, it was still a really tough completion because of man coverage. And I don't know what happened. Either Andy Reid decided that that's not sustainable, trying to throw RPOs in a tight man coverage. I don't know what happened. But they didn't go back to it. The Chiefs did not run a lot of RPO looks after that. I think the Chiefs must have really respected the Colts' linebacking core. 
They didn't run many RPOs, and they didn't run a lot of screen games. Not a lot of screen passes. You know, the Chiefs are legendary for really, really effectively running screen passes, and they didn't here. So either for some reason, they decided they didn't want to put that on film against the Colts, or Andy Reid, the Colts head coach, believed that they weren't going to be successful doing that. But either way, the Chiefs were one-dimensional. You know, they threw 39 times and ran 14. And three of those 14 runs were Patrick Mahomes running around extending a play. Now, part of that was because they were consistently in long down situations, second or third and long. But it was also because the Colts played really, really well against the run. Now, there's one more thing. It's an instance where the Colts screwed up and showed what not to do. There was a third and seven where the Colts blitzed the Chiefs. But they made a mistake. They brought a six-man rush, and they played zone defense behind it. It's too easy for a guy to get wide open against zone coverage when you play the Chiefs. The Colts never, ever did it again. They stuck with man coverage the entire rest of the game. So let's go back to my first two original questions. What did the Colts do that worked? And did they create a template other teams can follow to stop the Chiefs? First of all, I do not believe that other teams can replicate the success that Colts had. At least not very many other teams. Maybe a couple teams in the NFL can do it. But, you know, obviously penalties threw the game all out of whack. Gave the Colts a ton of extra yardage and, you know, constantly put the Chiefs in third and long situations. But number two, you have to acknowledge that the Colts have incredible, incredible personnel. They have a great defensive line. They have incredible linebackers. They have defensive backs who can consistently hold their own in man coverage. The Colts' defensive line got pressure on Mahomes without sending any extra blitzers. And the secondary played press man coverage. They hung really close to their guy. They didn't allow Mahomes to get easy completions underneath. And then windows downfield are really small and really tight, hard to get completions. And then the Colts played against the run incredibly. They flew downhill meeting guys in the hole, making great tackles in open field. And the honest truth is that not many teams have the personnel to execute the game plan that the Colts had. Maybe the 49ers. You know, the 49ers linebacking core is really good. Their defensive line is incredible. I'm not sure if they have the corners and the safeties to play man coverage as effectively as the Colts did. But man, the final thing I noticed is that if you're going to play Patrick Mahomes you got to stay patient. Again, he's going to have success. He's going to make all kinds of ridiculous plays. You can't stop Patrick Mahomes. All you can do, what we learned is that if you play well against the run, you make good tackles, you have good fundamentals, you play great man coverage, you get pressure with a four-man rush, you do everything right, then you have a chance to maybe slow down Patrick Mahomes. But let me tell you, nobody can stop him. The best you can hope for is to slow him down. All right. Um, I want to now shift gears to Robert Sala, the 49ers head coach, uh, 49ers defensive coordinator. So right now, the 49ers defense is phenomenal. Right now, they're the second fewest total yards per game in the entire NFL. The second fewest pass yards per game. The fifth fewest rushing yards allowed. Their defensive line is terrible. They have D Ford, Eric Armstead, Nick Bosa, DeForest Buckner, not to mention Solomon Thomas, DJ Jones in the mix. 
The 49ers linebacking core is scary good. They have Quan Alexander, Fred Warner. This guy named Dre Greenlaw, who's he was a fifth-round pick, but he's really stepped up. And then, obviously, the 49ers have Richard Sherman. And along with all the success the 49ers have been having on defense recently, we're now beginning to hear 49ers defensive coordinator Robert Sala's name in the mix as a potential candidate to be a head coach eventually. So maybe Robert Sala will leave the 49ers this offseason and become a head coach somewhere else. And uh, I personally really hope he does not do that. I'm not a 49ers fan. In fact, I don't have a favorite team at all. All I do is enjoy the stories. I like following the NFL. I'm an NFL fan just in general. But from afar, it seems like the 49ers are building something really, really special. They're undefeated. And every single week when they beat the crap out of another team, I just begin to believe in them more and more. You know, right now, Robert Sala has a really good thing going. And on the defensive side of the ball, the 49ers have something incredible. In fact, the 49ers defense is leading the way for their team. And here's an analogy I want to make. You know, he's winning races right now, but it doesn't hurt that he has one of the fastest cars at the track. Right? Robert Sala is winning races with a Ferrari. And my question is, would it be the same if you had a Kia? You know, my fear is that Robert Sala is going to go to a team like the Redskins and things aren't going to be the same. Let me tell you, the, the Redskins, the Falcons, the Dolphins, they don't have the 49ers defensive line. They don't have Fred Warner and, you know, uh, DeForest Buckner. They don't have even guys like Dre Greenlaw who kind of come out of nowhere and really impressive. They don't have Quan Alexander. And I really believe that the 49ers are beginning to build something. If Jimmy Garoppolo, the 49ers quarterback, cleans it up, in the next three years, the 49ers have a legitimate shot to win a Super Bowl. And so I really believe that he should try to win a Super Bowl first. I, I think, you know, he's doing great. His job is, is secure. And uh, if he's offered an interview, Robert Sala should go for sure. It's a good life experience to go meet with somebody and go meet with a bad owner. A guy like, go meet Dan Snyder. You know, go sit in the room with Dan Snyder. That'll give you a good perspective. But I, I don't think Robert Sala plans to leave the 49ers, but I keep hearing his name in the mix. And I hope he stays in San Francisco. I think that's what's best for him. Who, who am I to judge, right? If he wants to make a coaching decision and he wants to make a career decision and go become a head coach somewhere, hey, Go ahead. That's probably been his dream for years. Everybody, I think, dreams to be an NFL head coach someday when you're in the coaching world like that. But I just I just really hope that Robert Sala stays and doesn't screw up a good thing he has. I think he could become like the, the Brent Venables of the NFL. Brent Venables is the defensive coordinator at Clemson. And, you know, Dabo Sweeney's the offensive, offensive guy. Brent Venables is a defensive coach. And together, they're this incredible team that have won national championships and done all kinds of awesome stuff. And uh, they pray Brent Venables. They play him. They they pay him really, really well to keep him there. They want him to be there. And I think Robert Sala could be something similar with the 49ers. Kyle Shanahan's running the offense. Robert Sala's running the defense. They're a great team together. And I think it'd be really, really sad 
if they ended up breaking it up. It just would be heartbreaking. Like, oh, man, what a missed opportunity. What a chance to have something great that just never, never stayed together. So I really, I really, really hope Robert Sala stays in San Francisco with the 49ers. Okay, uh, I've been running into something recently that, you know, people keep getting mad at me for. It's very silly. I keep running into this thing where people get mad at me for changing my mind. And it's, it's just very, very silly. You know, I, I learn new information. And as I learn new information, my opinions evolve and they change. You know, sports are fun to me because you, you get to make a prediction. You, you analyze, you do all this research and all this stuff. And you go, okay, based on all the research I've done, I think this outcome is going to happen. And then sometimes you make a prediction and you're just wrong. And then you get to analyze, okay, why was I wrong? What happened here? What was the, what, ha- what was the thought process? What went on? I'm not Skip Bayless and I don't like people on television because they're so often... They, they pick a side, and they never, ever are willing to budge. And it gets ridiculous. It gets very, very silly. So people keep telling me things like, you know, quit changing your mind. Quit flip-flopping. And, uh, no. It'd be really stupid to not do that. What if I told you I believe the world is flat? Now, you know, the world's flat. It's not a globe. It's flat. And then I found evidence that proved me to be wrong. You know, I got in a plane one day, or I rode around the entire planet, or I went into space and I could actually see that, oh, wow, the world is not flat. It's a, it's a globe. It's a, it's a round sphere. Or I got satellite imaging, whatever you want, right? What if I found evidence? Wouldn't I be an even bigger idiot if I found evidence that made it clear I was wrong and I still was like, no, my opinion is this. I will not budge, right? That, that's what's even weirder and more idiotic. And I try really hard to not be the sports guy who refuses to listen to new information and evolve and change my takes. It's very important to me. I think a great example is that I predicted the 49ers to go 6-10. And, And well, you know, they're 4-0. And if you look at their schedule ahead, it's very clear. Oh, yeah, Zach, you were wrong. They're not going to go 6-10. and They're going to win a lot more games than that. And so it would be idiotic if I was like, no, 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 no. I said six wins. They're only going to win six wins. Something weird is going to happen. Jimmy Grapple's going to get hurt, and the meteor is going to hit the Santa Clara, and everything's going to fall apart. No, that'd be stupid. Why make up stuff to just stay in my... Why? No, let me just acknowledge, no, I'm, I'm wrong. And what kind of dummy doesn't listen to new information? I, I don't understand. You know, I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong. I'm willing to change. I'm willing to evolve my opinions. And that's... Simply how I do it. I'm, I'm not, that's how I do things. And I, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that I changed my mind. And so the fact that people come to me with stuff like, you're flip-flopping. No, that's, that's what I enjoy about this, is analyzing a situation and finding out, oh yeah, I was wrong about this and right about this. And the whole process is fun to me. And so I just want to be very, very open and upfront. Yes, I change my mind often. That's how I do things. That's why this is fun. I'm honest with you guys. I call it like I see it. And when I see it that I've been wrong, when, when I acknowledge, when I notice, oh yeah, I was wrong, I'll be the first one to tell you and admit it and talk about it because that's how I roll. And I think it's very important that I do things that way. 
that's what I believe is right. So, yeah, that's how I do things. Okay, let's talk about baseball real quick. Um, man, the MLB playoffs. The Dodgers lost. <laughs> the LA Dodgers lost. And uh, shocking to me. It is. I just couldn't believe it. You know, the Houston Astros are the best team in baseball by a lot, if you ask me. But I was hoping for the Astros and the Dodgers to play each other in the World Series. I was excited for that matchup, and I wanted that. And it's weird. You know, it's not going to happen. Sad to me. However, the way we got here, the way the Dodgers lost was interesting and controversial. Um, You know, the Dodgers brought in Clayton Kershaw as a reliever. Clayton Kershaw, if you don't know, how could you not know? I don't know. But Clayton Kershaw is this unbelievable like historic figure in baseball where he's just been an incredible pitcher for a long time. Like in the last decade, he's one of the best, if not the best pitcher in baseball. He's just really, really good. And there's a stretch where he's just like top of the world, just incredible. And so they brought him in in the seventh inning and he got the Dodgers out of a jam. And then in the top of the eighth, he gave up two home runs back to back and gave up the Dodgers 3-1 lead. He screwed up big time. And then, uh, you know, in the top of the ninth, Howie Kendrick's actually a former, Howie Kendrick, a former Dodger, hit a grand slam in the top of the 10th to give the Nationals a lead 7-3. to And that's how the game would stay. The Nationals won 7-3. to They advance in the playoffs. The Dodgers are out. And uh, first of all, again, I'm sad because I didn't get the World Series I wanted. But I'm also sad for Clayton Kershaw. He's this unbelievable legendary pitcher who's never been able to get it done in the postseason. Over and over and over again, this has happened where he's a starting pitcher. He's incredible all year. He's like literally like top of his game. And then when it matters most in the playoffs, he just cannot deliver. He just falls apart. And call it, to me, it's some kind of mental block. It's clear to me. Call it performance anxiety. Call it whatever you want. He struggles in big playoff moments. And I just feel bad for him. You, know, you could compare him to Kirk Cousins, but I think it's a bad comparison. And a lot of people were saying, he's the Kirk Cousins of baseball. No, he's not. Kirk Cousins, the Vikings quarterback, has never been phys- you know, just dominant all regular season. It's not like Kirk Cousins every year kills it and then goes to the playoffs and falls apart. No, that's what Clayton Kershaw did. That's more painful is what Clayton Kershaw has done. Is Clayton Kershaw has been unbelievable in the regular season. And then for whatever reason, again, because I think a mental block, he just falls apart when it matters most on the big stage. And that is so, so sad to see. To me, it's just like, oh, what a heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. So I, I just, I know I'm supposed to get up here and, you know, oh, Clayton Kershaw and be hard on him and angry. And a lot of people are today, I'm sure. I don't have an ounce of anger at Clayton Kershaw. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a Dodgers fan at all. Um, I just feel bad for the guy. You know, an unfulfilled dream. A career that's been so close and just not quite able to finish. You know, just all, he's been unbelievable in the regular season. And for whatever reason, Clayton Kershaw has not been able to deliver. And I just, that's just sad to me that this guy's incredible career is tainted with his inability to deliver in the postseason. And my final funny thought is that, you know, the Nationals are now moving on to the NLCS. (laughs) They're moving on in the playoffs. 
And I can't help but mention and think about and do whatever you want with this information. I'm just going to put it out there. I think about Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper, the former Washington National. One of my, I think he is probably my favorite baseball player. Just because he's fun and entertaining to watch. But he left the Nationals in the offseason and signed with the Philadelphia Phillies. <laughs> he went to the Phillies, got the contract he wanted, got, you know, 13 years, gigantic, tons of money, I think $250 million. This thing, just a gigantic, gigantic contract. He got all the money he wanted, but, you know, he's watching his team from the couch. He's watching his former team play baseball right now. I wonder how that feels, you know, to, you know, I got the money, but I didn't get to win. <laughs> I didn't get the postseason success my former team is having. They're doing it without Bryce Harper. That's weird and got to feel kind of painful. and got to make your value feel diminished, right? <laughs> that Bryce Harper does not have a big enough impact on a team to carry them to the playoffs. Clearly pitching is what got the Nationals. It's just like, wow, like, how does that feel? If you're Bryce Harper sitting at home, how do you feel? That's all I'm going to say. I don't, I don't have a, a strong, hard opinion on that one. I just... It's a curious, funny little thought. Okay, Bryce Harper, you're at home. And your former team is winning in the playoffs. It's got to suck. All right. Um, I want to now you know, talk about... This is the most important segment in the entire show. If you're struggling, please go get help. Three years ago, my younger brother took his life. It was heartbreaking. It was painful. Uh, just the worst thing I've ever been through ever. And I learned two lessons through that. One is that uh, if you're struggling, go get help. My brother never struggled, shared his struggles. I had no idea he was having a hard time. You know, one day I came home and found him dead on the floor. And that's awful. I don't wish that on anybody. It's a horrible, horrible thing to happen. And uh, I, just, I, I just really hope that if you're having a hard time, you can reach out to somebody and feel comfortable enough. And that's the other part of that is that the, the second hard lesson is that I didn't make it clear enough to my brother you can come to me. If you're having a hard time, reach out. I'm here for you. And so I encourage you, if you're listening, make sure the people in your life know how much you love them. Know that you care about them, that you're there for them, that they can always come to you when they're having a hard time. I don't feel like I made it clear enough to my brother that he could do that to me. You know, the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. The suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. But I'm, I'm asking you, man, Reach out to people in your life. Either if you're having a hard time, if you're struggling, go get help. And then make sure the people in your life know you love them. Be like, hey, man, there's a reason I go hiking with you. It's because I love you. I tell my girlfriend all the time, I love you. I care about you. If you're having a hard time, talk to me. My brother, my best friends, my girlfriend, everybody in my life. If, they, if I see them on a regular basis or even not, if I, if I go, if there's a guy who I just go to movies with. I don't really hang out with him. We just go to movies together. But I always tell him, hey, man, there's a reason I go to movies with you. You're a good company. I like being around you. And if you're having a hard, you know, I love you. And if you're having a hard time, talk to me. I'm here for you. So make sure the people in your life, A, know they can talk to you. And if you're struggling, please go get help. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. When I return, we'll do Ask Zach. Really fun, great segment today. My name is Zach Schaumler. I will be right back. All right, we are back. It's time for Ask Zach. This is my favorite segment of the show. So what I do at the end of every single one of my podcasts. People who support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Zach Schaumler. It's a dollar a month. You can give more if you want. 
Uh, it's a big help. It literally pays my bills. Um, but it gives you access to submit questions to me. And I only accept questions through Patreon, either through direct message on Patreon or you can comment on one of the posts I put on there. And I will not guarantee to discuss your question on the show, but I will guarantee to look at it with my eyeballs. And then I pick the best couple and read them at the end of every show and discuss them. It's really fun. It's my favorite segment. This is Ask Zach. So let's start with Luke. Luke writes in, he says, hey, Zach, I'm a big fan because of your pre-draft quarterback analysis is back in March when you had 10,000 subs. It's been great to see you grow. Luke, thank you so much. It means a lot to me. He says, my question is, what's wrong with Daniel Jones? I don't doubt he has a bright future, but he seems to have struggled mightily in the last two games, throwing four interceptions to two touchdowns against the Vikings and Patriots. Is it pressure? And more importantly to Giants fans, how can he fix it? Uh, Man, I I don't think anything's wrong with him. I really like him. Uh, I did a film analysis on him, and one of the points I made at the end was he's young. And he's, he's going to make mistakes. He's got five touchdowns and six interceptions. Doesn't surprise me. He's, you know, Peyton Manning had more interceptions like, by, than touchdowns by a lot as a rookie. <laughs> Incredible, like horrible. And yet I recognize that in the last two games, Daniel Jones has played the Vikings and the Patriots. And say what you want about the Vikings. Mike Zimmer, the Vikings head coach and you know, subsequent defensive coordinator, against him against a rookie coordinator is brutal. He's a great defensive coordinator who's got a good mind for football. And then Daniel Jones had to play after the Vikings had to play the Patriots, Bill Belichick, the evil empire, and the people who devour rookie quarterbacks. The last time they lost a rookie quarterback was Mark Sanchez years and years ago, and Rex Ryan was a good coach who messed with Tom Brady. So he's a rookie, man. I, I, I even think Daniel Jones is a franchise quarterback. I don't think there's anything wrong with him. I really like him. And I'm not going to panic. He's, he's learning. You know, he had an interception against the Patriots where he just made a bad decision. And I think that's good for him. It's a good learning moment where he's going to learn and grow and evolve. And I think people just need to have more patience for Daniel Jones. You know, Dwayne Haskins is legitimately concerning. But Kyler Murray, you know, he's a rookie quarterback of the Cardinals. He's struggling and not, he's just, he's very uneven and that's totally fine. You know, I have no concerns about, you know, about, both Kyler Murray and Daniel Jones. They're both young guys who make mistakes and have good moments and bad moments. And I, I think Daniel Jones has a lot of good stuff. He has good habits that I like, and I believe in him. So I'm not really concerned at all with Daniel Jones. So that was Luke. Luke asked that question. From, let's go from Luke to Lucas. Lucas. Lucas writes in and says, Hey, Zach, I'm a New England fan that lives in the heart of Seahawks territory. So I hear all about the deficiencies of the Patriots ad nauseum. After watching the game against the Giants, I'm starting to get worried that Tom Brady is one of the problems. The first half of the game and the parts of the second half highlighted my concerns about his age, which brings me back to an increasingly frequent thought. Is Tom Brady at the end of his road? Given the shaky moments this season, how long does New England have left at number 12? And how in the world can we replace him? Thanks and keep up the great work in podcasts. Uh, yeah, Tom Brady's had some bad moments this year that I, I can't defend, uh, that are c- concerning, right? Like I've learned in my life, you don't doubt Tom Brady. Like I still think, you know, in the playoffs, he can make a run. It's just Tom Brady. He can turn it on anytime he wants. And if noodle arm, gimpy <laughs> Peyton Manning 
could win a Super Bowl, then definitely Tom Brady can. Tom Brady's still far more physically gifted than Peyton Manning was in his final year. But Brady has struggled. He's made inaccurate passes. He's like underthrowing throws. Feels like he's holding onto the ball too long sometimes. And uh, again, I've learned never to doubt Tom Brady. The Patriots are now 6-0. and But they're 6-0 and because of their defense and because of their special teams and because their strength of schedule has been terrible. They played nobody really difficult. Brady's worst game by far was against the Buffalo Bills, who I think is actually the best team the Patriots have played so far. And I will acknowledge that every game other than the Bills game, he's had been very... He had a bad game against the Bills. Every other game, he's been up and down, uneven, but he's had bad moments. And so I think the Patriots are doing a good job from a play call standpoint, masking Brady's limitations. They're running the ball well. They're throwing a lot of screen passes, a lot of stuff underneath. But yeah, Brady has had some bad moments where he's not getting it done. Now, the next 10 games for the Patriots, they play the Jets, the Browns, the Ravens, the Eagles, the Cowboys, the Texans, the Chiefs, the Bengals, the Bills, and the Dolphins. I'm confident they'll win at least, uh, for sure I'm confident in those four games against the Jets, the Browns, the Bengals, and the Dolphins. Four plus six is 10. That's at least, they're at least going to win 10 games this year. But the big question marks, the four games that are going to be really tough for them, are the Ravens, the Cowboys, the Chiefs, and the Bills. Now, the Patriots have two and a half weaknesses right now. One, their offensive line. You know, I, I, made a, I said a line earlier that it feels like sometimes Brady's holding onto the ball too long. It also feels like he doesn't have enough time. His offensive line is struggling. They're, they're, they've been injured. They, they just are really, they're not what they've been in the past right now. They lost Trent Brown. They don't have... They're just, there's some problems right now with the offensive line that they're not, they need to be worked out. And then I think an even bigger concern, honestly, for the Patriots right now is their kicking game. How many times does a game, especially Patriots Super Bowls, come down to a final kick or a final play or the final couple minutes or a one possession game? The Patriots lost their kicker. He's out for the year. They now have Ted Nugent, Mike Nugent? Ted Nugent, I think, is a singer. They have Mike Nugent, though whatever his name is, Nugent, the kicker. That's how bad he is. I don't even know who he is. I know he's been in the NFL for a while, um, but he's not been great. They've been having snap and hold issues. They had a missed field goal the other night because the, the snapper messed up and the hold was holding the ball with the laces, so the kicker kicked the laces. And then I'm concerned about Brady, but the offensive line and the kicking game are big concerns for the Patriots. The next concern is Tom Brady. I think he's fine. I think he's going to get better, and it is still Tom Brady. I would never doubt him. And I believe he's going to rise to the occasion in the playoffs. That's who he is. That's what he does. But it's also clear that Tom Brady's slowing down. And so, yeah, you know, Tom Brady's had some bad moments. And I would really think it's time to start considering drafting a quarterback. If I'm the Patriots, unless I love, unless I love Jarrett Stidham and he's the truth and I believe in him, he's the next guy. I think the Patriots should draft a quarterback in the first round next year. Trade up if they have to. I really like Jake Fromm from Georgia. There's other quarterbacks I like. I think Jake Fromm fits the Patriots really, really well. And uh, I think he'd be a great fit with the Patriots. I think if the Patriots get the chance to draft Jake Fromm and they don't, they're idiots who screwed up. I want to stay with the Patriots, but I want to ask a question from Ed Boy. Ed Boy says, hey, Zach, who do you think has the best shot of taking down the Patriots come playoff time? To me, the Colts are actually the biggest threat to the New England Patriots. 
you know, like Lamar Jackson and the Chiefs are big concerns for a lot of people. Lamar Jackson can run around, and I, I have no concerns. I think I'm certain the Patriots can scheme against Lamar Jackson. And then watching the Chiefs and Colts made it pretty made me pretty confident that the Patriots have the ability and the playmakers necessary to run the same exact game plan, play really good man coverage, play the run really well, have a four-man rush and succeed. The Patriots can beat the Chiefs. I'm, I'm certain of that. But the Colts should terrify Patriots fans. You can scheme against a player's ability or technique or this or that. What you can scheme against is physicality. And the Colts are physically dominating against everybody they play. Sometimes they don't finish, right? They've had their three and two. There's a reason for that. But physically, the Colts are fantastic. They play their run really well. They play great man coverage. I fear, as someone who likes Tom Brady, I'm not a fan of the Patriots, but I like Tom Brady. I look at the Colts and go, that team could shut down Tom Brady. That team could, you know, stifle the run game, make Tom Brady win with his arm, and I don't think Tom Brady's arm can win. We saw Patrick Mahomes couldn't beat the Colts against Colts man coverage. So the Colts, if you're a Patriots fan, the team you should fear in the playoffs, more than any other team in my opinion, is the Indianapolis Colts. I know that sounds silly. You're like, oh, with Jacoby Brissett and Bill Belichick, he'll make whatever. No, 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 no. It's not about the quarterback. The Colts' roster is so good, they can win with Jacoby Brissett. Their roster is incredible. And I actually think Jacoby Brissett is a little more of a of an edge to him that Andrew Luck didn't. I believe in the Colts big time. And if I'm a Patriots fan, I'm more scared of the Colts than any other team in the entire NFL. Maybe the other team I would be scared of, I'm the Patriots, is the 49ers. Just because their defense is so good. But yeah, if I'm... I'm a Patriots fan. The Colts terrify me in the playoffs. Clayton wrote in. Clayton said this. He said, where is the piece of paper with the questions? Oh, no. There's so many papers. Where's the one I need? Clayton wrote in and said this. Clayton said, howdy, Zach. If you could implement one rule change or a small set of related rule changes in the NFL, what would it be and why? I started off in one direction, Clayton. I said I would hire NFL referees as full-time employees. You know, I think the refs are a big part of the game. They matter. They should be paid like they matter. And right now, let's be honest, officiating is ruining some of these games. There are some bad moments. And that is what I thought. Everything I said, I just said, was where I was going to go with this initially. And then I looked into how much NFL refs made a year, and I was like, whoa, no, now what? (laughs) And, And 2019, NFL refs make 205 thousand dollars a year over two hundred thousand dollars a year for an NFL ref and these are considered you know quote part-time employees all I hear all the time is NFL refs are part-time employees it's blah and I think oh and part-time means they're getting paid crappy no 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 they're getting paid very well <laughs> to do their job that their, their travels paid for they're there it's fantastic and it's insane to me, like $205,000 a year is a part-time job. I don't understand. I have no idea. I don't get it. And so I just hope that the NFL has full-time benefits for the NFL refs. I hope that they're taken care of because uh, the refs have been bad, man. It, they, they really are. You know, I wonder if having a reviewable pass interference has thrown them off. You know, the flag that was thrown on Jason Garrett last week had nothing to do with that. 
Jason Garrett threw it down a challenge flag, yelled something, and the ref threw a unsportsmanlike penalty on, on the coach. And I was like, dude, how sensitive and soft are the refs? I thought the refs were not supposed to have egos. The refs are supposed to enforce the rules and then shut up and get out of the way. Um, so it seems like some of these calls, they've just been crazy. I just don't understand. And so I don't know how to, I guess, here's the thing. I don't know how to fix it. I hate to acknowledge this. But the only thing right now I don't like about the NFL, I love the NFL. Everything is great. Maybe you can argue that ties are terrible. I, I, ties are dumb. And maybe that's where I should have gotten with this topic. But even ties are not ruining the NFL for me. Right now, the thing that I hate the most about the NFL and the thing that's driving me the most crazy and the biggest problem, like I hate overtime. I, I, sorry, I hate ties. I think ties should end with a college-style overtime. Let's figure out a real winner. I hate having a tie. It's terrible. But I can live with that. The thing that I am getting increasingly, increasingly annoyed with and just really tired of is bad NFL officiating. I'm like, I, I can't do this. This is terrible. This is awful. This is horrible, horrible officiating. It's driving me nuts. I hate watching it every week, and I don't know how to fix it. But if I could change or fix one thing in the entire NFL, I would fix the problem with the refs. It's just it's just not been good. It's been inconsistent. It's been hard to follow. I don't know what the rules are anymore. I just get confused. And if I could change one thing in the NFL, that is exactly what I would change. Devinator wrote in. Devinator said, hello again, Zach. I'm so proud of the work you do and ask that you keep going. I will, man. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. Anyway, I'm a huge Packers fan, and I love my quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. Despite my love for him, I can see where you're coming from in regards to his attitude on the field. He says, if you could interview him, if you could interview Aaron Rodgers, what are some questions you would ask him? And what advice, if any, would you give him? Thank you so much. Oh, dude, I would love, I would love, I would love to interview Aaron Rodgers. I would be very honest with him. I'd say, look, man, I'd say, look, hey, what's up with your facial expressions? I just, I just pull it out. Like, first question, Aaron, what's going on? Why does it look like you hate your teammates? Why do you stare them down? Why do you, why are your, why is your body language so negative? I, I'm not scared of Aaron Rodgers. He, I'm not friends with him anyways. What do I have to lose? I'd rather just ask him a real question. Like, yes, you could, I think a lot of people in the media must want to just build a, they don't, they don't want Aaron Rodgers to not like them. They want to get something on film. They're afraid of this. I had nothing to lose. I don't need an interview with Aaron Rodgers, but if I ever get one, and he never will now, he's afraid of me, I'm sure, after hearing this. I'd just be like, dude, what's up with your facial expressions? Why do you stare down your teammates? Why are you so negative when things go wrong? Why does it look like someone killed your puppy anytime you throw an incompletion or a third down doesn't work out? What's going on? I just don't understand. I'm not friends with Aaron Rodgers. I'm going to ask him a real question if I ever get the chance. And, uh, you know, he asked, what advice would you give him? Dude, he wouldn't let me give him advice. He just walk- I would ask him the question, what's up with your face? And he'd just walk away. He just would not even answer, I don't think. Um, you know, I've said a lot about him on my show. I've said one that he's incredible. Aaron Rodgers is the most physically gifted. One of the, if not the most, it's him or Patrick Mahomes. Probably Patrick Mahomes is now surpassing him, but Aaron Rodgers physically is unbelievable. And it's funny, by the way, that people used to say, you know, Brett Favre's arm is so incredible. Aaron Rodgers has a better arm than Patrick Mahomes did, in my opinion. And he's Far, 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 far. I I don't like, I'm not a big, I like Brett Favre like he's fun. Not a big fan of him. His work ethic was terrible. He succeeded in the NFL years ago. Like Brett Favre made it work 
before there was really refinement at the quarterback position, before quarterback trainers were a thing, before footwork drills were really a thing. He just kind of winged it and threw the ball all over the place. I watched the quarterback competition with Brett Favre from years ago on YouTube the other day, and I'm like, man, these guys are terrible. They all can't hit the broad side of a barn. They're inaccurate. Their footwork is bad. They're just guys slinging it. Now, Aaron Rodgers is way better than Brett Favre ever was. But I'm also concerned about his leadership. And I've said all that stuff for years on my show. I've said, I'm concerned about Aaron Rodgers' leadership, and I think he's an incredible talent. And so I would say that to his face. I'm not afraid of Aaron Rodgers. If I ever got to interview him, which will never, ever happen, he will never, ever give me the time of day. Aaron, if you want to, come on the show. Come explain to me why you look like you hate your teammates. I, don't, I just don't get like, what, what's going on? Why do, you, why do you look so negative whenever someone drops a pass on third down or whenever something happens? He just looks so, there's something going on. So I, I would love to ask him about the facial expressions. And that is what I would do if I ever got the chance to interview Aaron Rodgers. I'd be straightforward. I'd be honest and I would own it. Hunter writes in and says, Zach, love the podcast, man. As a fan of the team, I'm curious about your opinion on the Dolphins' plan, not just for this year, but long-term. On one hand, it's good to see them finally making a concerted effort to invest in potential future success. On the other hand, I feel as though they're dwindling their already low fan base by tanking this year at potentially the next. What do you think about their strategy, and how do you feel about sports teams tanking in general? Does it damage the brand in the long run? Thanks. Hope to see you in the XFL in the commentating booth. Me too. I would love to be an analyst for the XFL. XFL, if you're listening, hit me up. I'm interested. Um, Hunter, does tanking damage the brand? I mean, that's the real question, right? No, it doesn't damage the brand. Here's the thing. The minute the team starts winning again, all the people come back. Look at the Philadelphia 76ers. They tanked for years. And the minute they had stars, they didn't even really weren't even necessarily winning it, but the minute they had stars and were like, the process. It's it's going. And you know, they got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Boop. People were back. People were interested. People were watching. People were entertained and engaged. And so if the Dolphins are tanking, everybody's going to hate them. Nobody in Miami is going to want to go to their games. It's going to be a, a mess. Night, like the, It's a logistical nightmare. And a PR nightmare. Really, that's probably what I should have said. And then when the... The Dolphins draft new players. If the Dolphins draft Tua, Tonga Valoa, <laughs> all the angry Dolphins fans will come right back. Or if they, if Josh Rosen is the guy and they draft, you know, whatever it is, right? The minute there's a sliver of hope for Dolphins fans, they'll all come right back. That's what always happens. So it drives me nuts. Like people, you know, there's this notion that bandwagon fans are bad. And then you have a ton of miserable fan bases who hate their team. They're like, like Redskins fans cannot be happy with their team. I know you're like, I'm a Redskins fan. I'm not going anywhere. But you're 0-5. You suck. You're terrible. You hate your team. (laughs) So does tanking hurt the brand long-term? No. Does it mean you're going to sell fewer t-shirts and stuff? Yeah, probably. I wouldn't buy it. If my team was tanking and I didn't agree with it, I wouldn't do anything. But if you're a, you know, maybe some people agree with the Dolphins tanking. They're like, you know, our team sucks. We need draft picks. We need to get better. I'm on board with it. Let's do it. Let's tank and make it work. Maybe that's also an attitude. So who knows? I just know that I don't think it hurts the brand long-term because we've seen so many teams tank. And the minute they're out of it or the minute they even have hope and start winning a little bit, 
everybody floods right back and jumps right back on the bandwagon. It's very excited. Everybody's a bandwagon fan. Like it's just this idea of you're a bandwagon. It's still stupid. All right, I don't have a favorite team at all. That's the way to go. I don't have any favorite teams. I just enjoy sports, and I watch every game and talk about them and have fun. And I don't have to be miserable. I was a Mariners fan for years, and I was miserable. I hated my team. And I was like 11, and I was like, no more. No more of this crap. I don't agree with anything they're doing. You traded Adam Jones, this guy I loved, for Eric Bedard. Got rid of Raul Labanez, hit a bunch of home runs, became an all-star. Got rid of Adrian Beltre, instant all-star. I was like, no, no, no. I cannot support this team, and I refuse to support this team. I was like 11, and I was like, never again. I'm never again going to be holding to a be beholden to a fan base I don't agree with. So I don't understand fans, I guess, in general. because That's my mindset. But does tanking hurt the team, damage the brand? No. Because long-term, once you have a little bit of hope, everybody comes right back. Thanks for my rant. It's been my TED Talk about uh, teams tanking. You're welcome. Caleb writes in. Caleb says, hey, Zach, happy Friday. Hope recording is going well. Thank you so much. Hey, weird story behind this, by the way. I, uh, I've recorded this podcast like four times. <laughs> I said in the beginning of the show, I'm tired and I'm dead. And I really felt like I recorded the opening segment with the Chiefs and the Colts like a million. Like, I think I did it like five times because I kept screwing up and I kept feeling weird and I kept like having no energy. And I, was, I just had to like go get coffee and take a two hour break because I just could not for the life of me record it. It was just bad. So it, it's been going. The show's going to come out like at like midnight now, which is very sad. Um, anyways, Caleb writes in and says, I want to ask you about watching football. What is your favorite one versus one, one V one personal matchup to watch? I personally enjoy watching the defensive end versus the offensive tackle matchup the most. Uh, Caleb, you're, you're right on. That's a great defensive end versus offensive tackle is awesome. I love that. Um, also, you know, one of the favorite matchups to me is receiver versus corner. Um, uh, but to me, the, the matchup I've been watching this year that I've really come to love and come to enjoy has been linebacker against running back. Uh, there's a couple things, you know, first of all, I love when running backs step up and pass block on linebackers who are blitzing. It's so cool to watch. And then I love watching, you know, I watch the Colts defense a bunch, watching linebackers come downhill and make a great tack, solo tackle in the hole and stop a guy's progress. Or maybe that they're outside the pocket in the flat and they're, it's an open space, and a linebacker makes a great tackle. I was at Utah the other day. Utah played Washington State, and uh, Washington State's running back got tackles on, like, the two-yard line, and it was a great open field tackle. And I was like, oh, man, that's what football's all about. It's so cool. And then there's, you know, in the flats when a running back escapes and is an outlet to throw the ball, does a linebacker lose track of him? Do they cover him well? I've been really, really enjoying watching the linebackers for whatever reason. I've just been watching them a bunch this year. And linebackers and running backs, their matchup, their one-on-one matchup in the hole, in their passing game, and blitzing and in the pass blocking game, it's so fun. And that's a cat-mouse game I've been just enjoying all year watching linebackers. I, for whatever reason, I just gravitated to them this year, and it's been really, really fun. Patrick writes in, he says, Hey, Zach, a few episodes ago, you said that you like Joe Buck as a play-by-play announcer and that you would like to work with him. So it's funny. His next question. My question is why? I personally think Joe Buck is super boring, and I like more enthusiastic commentators like Gus Johnson or Joe Tessitore. I wonder what you think makes a good broadcaster. Greetings, Patrick. Uh, I hate Joe Tessitore. I hate everything about Monday Night Football. It's so terrible. I guess Joe Tess isn't bad. He just got 
Boogie's an idiot. Boogie's just awful, and so he makes Joe Tess look bad, maybe by pulling the room down. Uh, yeah, Gus Johnson's awesome. I love Gus Johnson. He's really energetic. Uh, you know, Stokely down the sideline. Wow! Like that's an that's a crazy incredible call that like, gives me like goosebumps just to even pretend to do. It. I could never do what he does, and it's very different, right? I really respect anybody who just play by play because it's so saying what's happening as it happens is so much more difficult to me. I can't imagine doing that. All I can imagine is reacting. I have, I am full of reactions and I'm full of analysis. I can always say that was man coverage. Here's why, you know, linebacker blitz, whatever, whatever the situation is, I can always explain it. It's so much harder in the moment to like, he looks right. He pumps, he looks left. He evades left. He steps up. He throws the ball downfield. Like that's so much harder to me. I can't even fathom doing it. I can't even pretend to do it. So anyways, my question, you know, why Joe Buck? I like Joe Buck. I just personal preference. I like him. I like his voice. Um, and I, I think that he's had some bad moments, admittedly. You know, Mitchell. 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 Touchdown. Like, it's just the guy running a kick return back. And you're like, you're just saying Mitchell. I have no idea what's happening. If I wasn't watching, I would have no idea. But that's the other thing is that Joe Buck does TV. He doesn't need to perfectly describe it. You can see it with your eyeballs. And so... I am a maybe Joe Buck apologist. I like him. I think his job's really hard. I don't think people understand how difficult broadcasting is. I've said dumb stuff and screwed up a lot. One time I forgot uh, John Elway's name on air, and I was like, uh, what's the guy who was a quarterback for the Denver Broncos for years? He won two Super Bowls. He's our team president now, but I can't remember his name, and I couldn't remember his name, and I got killed. I got blasted for it. Like, it's it's just that happens sometimes, man. Everyone has mistakes. You make mistakes at work. I make mistakes at work. Unless you're perfect, maybe you are. I don't know. Um, now, I I just think Joe Buck is a pleasure. I I like listening to his broadcast. His voice is comforting. He's good at baseball. He's good at football. I enjoy him. There's not a. I wish I could give you a better reason than that. I think what makes a good color analyst is very different from a good play by play announcer. A play by play is just more like the straight man who's just delivering what's happening. And then has to have good report. The guy next to him a good conversation. Uh, I think Joe Buck does a good job. I think maybe he could do a better job getting more excited. And Gus Johnson is definitely uh, in a, a, an elite class of his own. Gus Johnson gets whatever job he wants because he's really, really good. Um, but I, li- I like Joe Buck. I think he'd be a pleasure to work with. And uh, I'm a fan of his. The last question of the day is from Jackson. Jackson writes in and says, What made you love football? And specifically, what made you love the quarterback position? There's so many layers to this. First of all, obviously, me and my brother grew up playing football in the backyard. And that's, you know, really, really special. And then football has so much strategy. And there's so much tension. You know, like, I love football for the same reason I love a good movie. There are moments where you're like, on the edge of your seat, you're all in. You're like... And you just lean in more and you don't know what's going to happen next because it's so like you're not sure who's going to win and you make predictions and you make theories and you have it's just so fun to analyze to me. I love, I love, I love, I love, I love the game of football for that reason. The strategy and the tension and the storytelling, it it all it lends itself so well. And it's so much more enjoyable to watch like than baseball. And I think it's more enjoyable to watch than football because or than, than basketball. Basketball and baseball happen so frequently, they're hard to cover. They're hard for me. Like, even as a fan, it's hard to follow because I'm like, 
I watch one game in baseball, and the next day, the thing I'm just learning about from yesterday is already over, and there's a new thing to worry about. And I, even as a fan of baseball, I'm like, I can't, I just can't keep up. And basketball is the same way. It's so much churning of information and happening all the time. Football happens once a week. You can follow it. Then you build up to it, and you enjoy it on that day. And there's like a, like a, a special day, Sunday, dedicated to football. All weekend for me is football Saturday and Sunday, but it's awesome. Now, quarterback's a whole different story, man. Um, to me, quarterback is camaraderie. There's this moment you get when you play quarterback. And I've, I've never been able to get the same feeling in any other situation in my life. I, I, I just can't. You can't duplicate it. Uh, there's this cool moment in a huddle. You know, some quarterbacks, I've told this story before. You know, some quarterbacks just go in the huddle. They call a play. You know, it's you know, Ringo Pepper on one offense break, you know, whatever. And, uh, and some quarterbacks go in and call the play and they add more to it. They go look at their guys and go, Hey guys, look at me. Give me, give me your eyes. Take a deep breath. <sighs> Relax. We have two minutes left. We got to drive downfield. Why can we go on two here? I think we can get it. Why can we go on two? everybody else? Can we go on two? And they all nod their heads. And go, yeah, we can go on two. I say, okay. Plays Ringo Vegas on two Ringo Vegas on two on two offense scoring. You break the huddle and you go and you run the play and you do this all together. And there's this such a, I don't even know how it's the best feeling in the world to execute an offense all together. And to you trust that he's going to expect the back shoulder fade and you know, he's going to bend behind the linebacker and you know, he's got the hits. He's going to run the hits, right? Every little thing is so like intricate and cool and playing quarterback, getting to orchestrate all that and organize and be a part of leading all these guys down the field is the best feeling in the entire world. There's nothing, maybe maybe a couple things. I shouldn't go, it's a bad joke. There, It's a special, special feeling, man. And it's so cool. Um, and I love it. I love it. So I love throwing the ball. I think the way that, I think quarterback mechanics like are just, I, I watch videos of quarterbacks. I think it's beautiful to watch quarterbacks throw the ball. I know it's weird, but like watching a spiral happen perfectly is like art to me. It's just, ah, oh, it's wonderful. And then, you know, what drove me for years, I had a coach one time who said I was too small. And you know, it's a shame. This has happened so many times in my football career. Coaches always thought I was too small and not good enough and uh, never believed in me. And I've never really, I've had one coach my entire life who really, really believed in me. And I, I won for that coach. I, I played for him for two years and we won a bunch. I said, broke records for him. We made the playoffs every year and turned around a program. And it was fun to like, I had a guy who finally wanted me, believed in me. And, and sadly, I've only had that once in my entire career. I've never been able to find a coach who, who wanted me and believed in me as, 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 a, as a quarterback. And I've had coaches say, you're a great leader, but go off to the side and don't be involved. It's like, not, I wanted to play. I want to be on the field. So, um, yeah, that coach that didn't believe in me, that's what drives me a lot. It's people who don't believe in me. <sighs> so that's why I love quarterback, man. It's a special. You're not just a guy throwing the ball. Quarterback is not just the guy who calls the plays. There's a responsibility there to be a positive example, to lead the people around you, to encourage and elevate. And, and you know, I think a quarterback who's a little better thrower, who doesn't do the other things, elevate, encourage, inspire, doesn't matter. Like, I think that guy's not as good a quarterback. I think, I think really quarterback and leadership is one of the most important things. In the quarterback position, I, I just really strongly believe it. That's why Tom Brady is so great. 
And uh, that's why I love Jake Fromm, the quarterback out of Georgia. Guys, that's all I have. Thank you so much. I love you guys so much. I really love doing this show. It's a blast. Um, and uh, I'll get this out as soon as I can. It's going to take forever. I apologize in advance. But uh, I know it's a good one. Guys, my name is Zach Schalmer. Thank you so much for tuning in. But um, bum bam. We are actually, before I go, I'm so excited for next week. We have so many good things, so many good topics. Tuesday, a bunch. We have like five film analysis videos next week. They're going to be incredible. My name is Zach Schalmer. It's going to be awesome. Have a great day. Bye.